Hey ladies and gents, welcome to the Control of Interest Gamecast, where we talk about video games and everything happening in the industry. Episode 230, I am your host, Jared Weich. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Dominic Orlando. Praise the sun. Praise the sun. Praise uh, football being back. Praise winter coming soon. This is like my favorite time of the year, Dom, because it's getting colder, which I'm more of a cold weather fan than a hot weather fan. I love the NFL. I mean, I love sports in general, so like... You know, we have uh, playoff baseball right now. We have the NBA set to come back. We have college football. We have uh, my favorite string of holidays. We got Halloween into Thanksgiving into Christmas, which is so good. Um, And we have video games. And we're going to be talking about some video game news today. A lot to talk about. We got acquisitions. We got some updates. We got some quote-unquote leaked information about things. And uh, the bulk of the show is going to be the review roundup for both Far Cry 6 and Metroid Prime. They're kind of the two big, first big fall title releases this year. Metroid Dread. What did I say? Metroid Prime. Sorry, Metroid Dread. Uh, Yeah, hopefully we get the Metroid Prime trilogy remastered on Switch. I can play those games for the first time. Um, Freudian slip there. Let's start up with a segment I like to call Desired and Acquired. Got a couple of acquire, uh, acquire... Acquisitions, Jesus, can't talk. Uh, the first one, Sony, uh, has announced via the PlayStation blog that Blue Point Games is now a part of the PlayStation Studios family in a long-rumored acquisition, which was actually kind of leaked earlier this year. I don't know if you remember that. That Japanese account kind of posted that picture about Blue Point joining, and then they kind of rescinded the tweet, and they're like, oh, you didn't see anything. Nothing happened. Um, obviously, there's a, r- a lot of rumors circulating. IGN had a piece talking about how Blue Point is focused on making an original game, whatever that means. Um, obviously, there's also rumors about Bloodborne and then being involved in that in some capacity. I guess just from your perspective as somebody who's a primary PlayStation guy, Dom, what does it mean to ha- officially have Blue Point Games under the fold? And, you know, whether the rumors say this or they say that, what do you want to see first from Blue Point as a member of PlayStation Studios out of the gate? Definitely Bloodborne. I mean, I... I... We had talked about this earlier this week, but I, I doubt it would be a sequel or anything to that effect, right? Um, yeah. And if it would, and if it was, I would have some reservations about that. But and more likely to me, it would be a remaster, maybe not a remake because it's still too recent. But like you know, the the director's cut that they just gave to Ghost of Tsushima, Death Stranding, and some of those games, I, I would imagine something like that, and especially because obviously from software and uh, Japan. Oh man, what are they called? Studio Japan did Bloodborne and um, it might be hard to get those those teams because Studio Japan's not even around anymore, right? They kind of let that evaporate. But... They folded and they brought some of the employees into Asobo, I think is the right. name of the studio that That's makes right. the, um, what are those games called? The little With robot. The robot. I can't yeah. That either. Holy crap. Astro, Astrobot yep. games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so like, I could see where they've been wanting to do this director's cut for Bloodborne and just haven't been able to get, you know, from software to give them the time of day on it. So maybe that's something that, you know, Blue Point said, yeah, we could do this. And uh, with probably with From Software's blessing, or they probably don't even need it, but it would be nice either way. But I just want 60 frames per second. 
Bloodborne, yeah. Well, and that studio is so talented, right, at doing that type of stuff that I could totally see most of the development studio working on whatever their original game is and having a small team dedicated to making a remaster. Because like you said, remake seems a little too soon. Remaster is obviously still a good amount of work that needs to be put into it, but a smaller side team can definitely handle that and get that done, especially with that team's experience with doing it, right? They have a lot of probably those tools in place. And I'd assume now with actually being acquired that PlayStation's probably backing the studio bulking up a bit to maybe be a studio like Insomniac Games that can handle multiple projects at once. And maybe Bluepoint will get to a place where they are releasing their (coughs) own original games, but they'll also have a team big enough to handle some of these remasters or remakes that they kind of built themselves on because PlayStation has that confidence in them to deliver that as well. You know, kind of have your cake yeah. and eat it too with them, which would be great. Um, and we know who knows, that, yeah, Sony would want to charge 60 bucks, 70 bucks, or whatever for this Bloodborne remaster, too. And chumps like me will pay for it, so exactly. Plenty of chumps out there, I'm one included. Uh, insert the clown uh, gif uh, with the guy sitting at the table looking back. Um, next up, another acquisition here that is a little bit more out of the blue, but it makes sense the more you dive into it. And that's Night, Night School Studios, developers of Oxen Free 1 and 2, as well as After Party, uh, announced themselves that they've been acquired by Netflix. And they actually had a piece that they released on their own blog on their website that I wanted to read real quick. And they say, as of today, Night School Studio has joined the Netflix team. Over the past few months, we've had countless thoughtful chats with our respect about our respective visions for where we see games, storytelling, and our collective opportunity for positive impact somewhere in the middle. Night School wants to stretch our narrative and design aspirations across distinctive original games with heart. Netflix gives film, TV, and now game makers an unprecedented canvas to create and deliver excellent entertainment to millions of people. Our explorations in narrative gameplay and Netflix's track record of supporting diverse storytellers was such a natural pairing. It felt like both teams came to this conclusion, conclusion instinctively. Of course, it's a surreal honor to be the first game studio to join Netflix. Not only do we keep doing what we want to do, how we like to do it, but we get a front row seat on the biggest entertainment platform in the world. The Netflix team has shown the utmost care for protecting our studio culture and creative vision. We'll keep making Oxenfree 2. We'll keep cooking up new game worlds. For now, there's a kaleidoscope of butterflies in our team's collective stomachs. What a neat phrase. uh, Quote, apparently that's what you call a group of butterflies news to me reading this because we truly believe we've got a chance to positively impact the way people discover play and share story games with with each other let's go from sean crankle uh, of night school studio so this is interesting so this is netflix's first studio acquisition but it isn't their first foray into interactive entertainment we had the black mirror uh what was it called dom do you remember the interactive series for black mirror snatch bandersnatch uh they've also added the minecraft uh game as well which i can't think of the name that's also an interactive storytelling game it's the one that was by telltale um names escaping me now um but isn't their first time looking into games this is just their initial purchase to get a studio in-house um a couple of things here oxen free 2 hasn't released yet they're still working on it i'm intrigued to see how this changes the release of that game i think i still think it comes to all the platforms it was expected to but i almost guarantee it's going to have some integration in netflix which will be very uh interesting i wonder if with this do you think part of this too with netflix uh dumb is that they get access to the ip and maybe they want uh either night school studio or a different studio to handle some sort of oxen free animated series or something attached to the ip as well well 
I don't know about that, just because we've seen so much that Netflix has done um, with other IP without having to own that, right? Like they made The Witcher show and they do, they've, oh, there's some other fantasy show they did. I, they do tons of stuff, which is partnering or licensing. Or the Dragon else. Prince, it goes on and on, yeah. Yeah, there's even like a Dragon's Dogma anime show on Netflix. Like, um, yep. So I think if they wanted to do something with that IP, they would that's all they wanted they probably would do it a different way but i i think yeah it's more like let's make a game and that studio i have not played oxen free but from what i'm prejudicially assuming that that gameplay is like it could work on netflix uh being fully streamed without problem it's more dialogue and an adventure style game is it not very simple movement. It's yeah. It's basically think of it as like a two D Telltale game. And I'm not trying to be redundant there. It's just that like the active gameplay moments aren't necessarily there. It's more so walking to certain areas, having those dialogue decisions, that type of stuff. Light puzzle solving. Um, but yeah, it could totally work. And with most people having, you know, interacting with Netflix on some sort of device that has a controller or a keyboard. Uh, or you know what I mean? There's going to be a way for them to integrate the uh, an ability to play it. Um, I'm just curious, and I wasn't saying from the perspective of they only got them because they wanted the IP. It's just that when you acquire something uh, like that, Dom, and you spend money on it, they probably want to try to get the most out of it, right? Yeah. Squeeze the lemon for all the juice. Um, it is interesting. Um, in my opinion, I would have much rather if Night School Studio was looking to get acquired, I would have much rather had them go to you know, a Nintendo, a Microsoft, a Sony, just because they are familiar with the game development. And I don't know how Netflix is overarching behavior is going to affect this. Obviously they said they haven't touched our studio culture. They're going to let us go as we go, but you never know. Uh, at least we have a track record with some of those other publishers and, and, you know, game developer houses, Netflix, it's untapped. They haven't owned a team before. Um, so for better or worse, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, I'll be curious the amount of time it takes for us to hear about a second acquisition, I think could play a huge role in what I think Netflix's plan is moving forward, Dom. Uh, but we don't know necessarily. It could have been just they saw Night School Studio was a unique opportunity, but it just may be you know, a, a direction they're headed to add more value to a service that they slowly and steadily increase the price of, right? That's a good point. Yeah, I forget that every couple of years it goes up a dollar or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. So good for Night School Studio. Financial uh, independence is great, but sometimes that security blanket is even better, especially for an indie studio who, though Oxenfree was a hit and people are excited for Oxenfree 2, After Party was kind of a dud. Didn't review all that well. Didn't get a whole lot of hype. Um, if anything, it brought up the conversation of the original Oxenfree because of how good that game was in retrospect. So um, good luck to them. I hope everything turns out well, and I'm glad to see they're happy with that decision. Uh, next up, we got some Xbox, Xbox Game Pass news. Speaking of subscription services, um, uh, here we had in a fireside chat between Xbox head Phil Spencer and the CEO of Take-Two, Strauss Zelnick, uh, via like a Yahoo setup event thing. Zelnick accidentally revealed that game, Xbox Game Pass is now hovering above or around 30 million subscribers, an almost 100% increase from when the last public numbers were revealed for the service when it was said to have 18 million subscribers in January of 2021 via Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. Um, this was pretty interesting. That's kind of wild growth. It's 
I honestly am not surprised. I don't know if you you're probably not surprised either, Dom, just because of the amount of sales, the amount of value they're adding to it. And that's a huge number of subscribers. And uh, the way the conversation played out is they were talking about Game Pass and Strazonic said, well, yeah, for a service of 30 million subscribers. And Phil Spencer kind of laughed and he's like, that's what it's around, right? And Phil said, well, our last public numbers were 18 million. And then they kind of both <laughs> laughed about it. Uh, so you could tell that, you know, Zelnick wasn't supposed to share that information. Obviously, as the CEO of Take-Two, he has conversations with Microsoft all the time about how well the service is doing uh, and whether or not they should put their games on there. So it, it's pretty incredible. That's, like I said, it's almost 100% increase. Obviously, double would have been around $36 million, But from 18 to $30 million in, uh, what are we, nine months, 10 months, that's pretty crazy, right? Yeah, we had seen such quick growth Uh the you know preceding couple of years and until we heard that 18 number i think but so the, yeah this doesn't really surprise me either you wonder like when is it going to plateau you know even if only slightly or when is the growth the rate of growth going to start to decline a little bit and not yet <laughs> so well yeah, when you factor in cloud right like cloud gaming and if they're going to yeah. add something where you can connect it to a tv or work it through a fire stick or something who knows when the growth is actually going to stop if it's going to be available everywhere right especially yeah. as they expand to territories that maybe aren't super fond of having an xbox console but having something where they can stick it to their tv or mobile right or something like that via the cloud services um who knows it's 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 kind of wild I think this is where we talk about, you know, the gaming industry is so huge in terms of revenue and cloud gaming and subscription services seem like the future, or at least a side part to the future. And Xbox clearly understood that. Um, and I, I wonder, it's clear right now that Xbox Game Pass is the winner in terms of it versus Stadia, right? Um, I wonder if these numbers as it grows how many companies are going to continue to try to get a piece of that pie or if it ends up just being two to three companies that are vying for that wholesale number, right? Like how much with Xbox having 30 million subscribers, what's the total cap on that when you include all the services and how much of that pie will Xbox have, you know? Cause yeah. How much overlap is there too? Yeah. Exactly. And we talk about PlayStation now and it being a good service, but it just doesn't have the pop of Game Pass. Um, and they don't see PlayStation doesn't seem to update people on how well it's doing that often, which is odd because I doubt it's it's not doing bad. Um, but I do think they need to pivot it in a way to make it more desirable. And as time goes on and Xbox gets more of the market share there, I think it's going to be harder because even people who are PlayStation first people if you see the value in game pass that gives you an opportunity to play a second platform at a pretty cheap price. So what's the point of you committing to PlayStation through PlayStation plus and buying your own games in addition to PlayStation now, when you can get game pass and be able to get the best of both platforms, right? That's going to be a tough thing too. Cause that's a, that's a good sell for Xbox where they can be your second system and get the money from you. Um, because it is weird to double dip. I don't know. It's going to be an interesting thing moving forward. And I, you're right on what is the cap here? Like, what is the end-all, be-all for the market? And does Xbox already have the lion's share of it, right? Like, if, what if, if the cap is 45, 50 million and Xbox is already sitting at 30 million subs and maybe, sure, they plateau around, you know, 35, 36 million, that's still more than two-thirds. That's almost like 90%, you know? So 
who knows um yeah i think they probably look at that at a cap being much much higher than than we're considering right the way they're oh for sure well you know once we're on iphones or they are on iphones now i think um once we're on uh windows 10 probably eventually you know even uh whatever the heck they call mac os yeah and so on and then once if they can also get a you know on maybe it it would be hard to get on roku or smart tvs to make that to make that technically work but maybe they have their own uh streaming box you know in like the hundred or usb peripheral yeah yeah, and they're probably messing with that. I imagine that's hard to do to get it to be reliable. But if if Google can do it with Chromecast uh, with Stadia, then I imagine um, I, I would assume Microsoft could figure it out at, at least as, as to work as well. So yeah, it's there's a there's a high ceiling I think. And uh, on the other side, uh, I I don't know. I'd be curious what PlayStation's plans are because they're definitely trying this. You know, they want their cake and to eat it too. I think. We were to use that metaphor once, but you know they want to be able to charge seventy dollars for their first party games and get you know a huge uh, or, uh, subscription base of people, and that's that's gonna I think gonna prove tough. You know your your cap on your subscription base of users is is lower than Microsoft, right? When you don't go all in on it, because like right now, I've been subbing to uh, PS Plus for a couple years, but going forward, like once I'm into the once I actually have a Series X, it's kind of like well, I'd rather drop Plus, even though even though I guess it's technically cheaper if you don't get a deal. But and then just use Game Pass, yeah. and then you're still buying first party PlayStation games, but there's no need to have that sub anymore. At that point, is it's it feels redundant at best, and you because because it's just too good not to have Game Pass. That eventually, you're like if you like to play most of the games, you you're gonna you're gonna want Game Pass. It's kind of hard to avoid. Well, yeah, and the scary thing is, you know, the good thing with Xbox's situation right now is if the gaming industry blows up in a way where AAA development can't sustain itself, which is a big worry. We've heard about this for years now, right, where the budgets for these AAA games is getting so out of hand, plus, you know, worker conditions and stuff, which we'll get to later. It's just a lot that there could be a point in which it blows up in the face of everyone involved in the industry. With Xbox, they actually have a way out both ways where the subscription service allows them to kind of pivot their development style, right? And you've already, you're already seeing that with games like Grounded or even Psychonauts 2. There aren't these big AAA budget games, but come out and do well on the service because you're getting the subscription, right? Um, but they also have the AAA titles. Yeah, they're releasing it as well. But say the subscription model fails, they can still pivot back to, they still are releasing these temple titles. With PlayStation, on the other hand, they're going for the, these are Hollywood blockbuster video games. We're pushing a ton of money into these. And... If there were to be some type of blow up, you know, I think both companies would survive, obviously, but I do think PlayStation might be more affected by it because they are kind of putting all of their eggs in that AAA, quadruple A development basket, you know, more so than Xbox is. And yeah, who knows? But um, I honestly, at the end of the day, like we talk about with most things, Dom, I hope that these numbers drive PlayStation to want to provide their customers with something of more value and it makes them pivot to offering a service whether it's PlayStation Now or something new that maybe does give benefits towards new releases or something because, you know, we're already seeing blowback from people on $70 games, not even just PlayStation, but in general, right? So I'm kind of curious to see how that all plays out as time goes forward. Um, Next up, I mentioned, you know, workers' rights and how things are going in terms of development cycles. 
We got some news today, the day of recording this, which is October 7th, Dom. Eidos Montreal uh, basically said they're the developers of, uh, you know, they're the developers of the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy game. They announced on Twitter, uh, quote, we're continuing to adapt our studio to the new realities of work. After remote working and the hybrid model, we're shifting to the four-day work week, a better work-life balance for even more innovative games. Now, the thing to keep in mind here, too, Montreal is a city in which landing on the best places to work, healthiest places to work list is very, like, pivotal. That's, like a very important thing in that city and actually drives a lot of employment. And for those who don't know, Montreal is one of the most competitive cities in terms of game development. They have a lot of studios there. There's a lot of uh, job competitiveness in terms of hiring people from studios. Um, So this goes a long way in that as well as we've talked about Dom, like, you know, crunch isn't good. Obviously sometimes companies feel it's the reality of the work, but shifting to a four day work week is something that I think, not only provides health to the developers, but changes game development in general in a good way. And it might be something we see moving forward. I mean, generally speaking, in terms of society, we're seeing this revolution. Obviously, it might make it sound a lot grander than it actually is of people and how they feel they should be treated at their jobs, how they feel uh, they should be employed. And we're in a place now where workers' rights are important and the employee is fighting for what they deserve from their employers. Uh, we see that with people you know, quitting jobs, demanding more for minimum wage, all of this stuff. And I do think that you know, changing the typical eight to five, uh, five-day work week is something we might see not only in the gaming industry, but you know, in other industries as well. What do you think about this for Idols Montreal and then just generally for, you know, changing the work week and how we work as employees um hell yeah like this is <laughs> this is awesome and wow am i jealous <laughs> that's my initial reaction when i when i heard about this because that's they're gonna get probably a wave of applicants you know <laughs> especially at first and uh i think and it's gonna prove it's gonna prove to serve them really well from because we know there have been studies that you, your productivity is is higher you know, when you don't work, even even forty hours a week isn't optimal. Yeah, I think the ideal is like around like just straight thirty. So moving to thirty two, which logistically makes sense if you're keeping eight a day. Those um, studies say that morale is more important than time worked. Right. Yeah, um, and that's why you see, especially as you go above forty, yeah, you might be technically getting more done, but the rate at which you're getting things done in those uh, between fifty and sixty and sixty and seventy hours a week. It's just shit. You're very inefficient. And then after doing that for enough time, then you're completely useless. That's maybe an exaggeration, but yeah. (laughs) So, um, absolutely. And I think they're going to see, so I think they're going to see benefits in productivity and in talent acquisition because so many people are going to be like, absolutely, let's work there. And hopefully though, um, I don't live in Montreal and I don't work in the industry. So um, my, my real hope selfishly is that this starts a trend and yep. obviously we're in the United States. And so we've got a ways to go before we can, you know, get the attitude of a Canadian company. Um, Cause we don't quite share the same culture, especially in regards to uh, work-life balance and things like that. But hopefully this is, you know, the first domino in a long line of them. Cause this is really cool. And I'm glad that I'm ecstatic rather that they're doing this. I'm, I'm super pumped. 
well, yeah, the moment these other companies start losing employees and they're like, well, Mm -hmm. maybe we should consider the four-day work week. And then that's the thing that's interesting, too, that people don't think about is obviously sitting in this standpoint, it's like, no, four-day work week would never work. People are so used to working five-day work weeks in any industry. But it, as you tell me a lot of the time, it you know something isn't real until it's real. Like it isn't a thing until it's a thing. So four-day work weeks may sound odd, but the moment they start becoming the norm, then they're the norm. You know what I mean? That's just how it works. It's never happened before until it does. <laughs> exactly. That's a, that's the phrase I was looking for. Exactly. One of your go-tos, and I love it. Um, yeah. So it's it's cool. Uh, Speaking of their game, Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, it's very polarizing in terms of its reception from the trailers. I just want to hop into a Marvel game, and this is the first story-driven Marvel game we're getting since Miles Morales. Obviously, Avengers wasn't that. Um, even, like, Midnight Suns is not, is a more of a tactical adventure. It's not necessarily focused on the narrative. So I'm excited to see what this is, and, uh, you know, hopefully it leads to a sequel or... Something I just want it to be successful for Afraidos Montreal because that's the thing too in this whole situation is, you know, if Guardians flops, what does that mean for Eidos' future? Do they get sold? Because we've seen Square Enix has kind of been fickle with their Western studios. Um, who knows? We'll see what happens. Um, but I am interested in Guardians. It comes out at the end of this month. Hopefully it reviews well. Speaking of reviews, Dom, uh, earlier I said Metroid Prime, I'll correct myself now, Metroid Dread and Far Cry 6 released, and I got some review roundups here, uh, and then we'll get into whether or not we're interested in these games, if we've started them or not, all that stuff, uh, but I'm going to go through these here. This is via Metacritic and you know the websites for the, uh, the reviews that were published. Here's a roundup of the reviews for the Nintendo's latest entry in the beloved Metroid series, Metroid Dread, as well as a look at how critics felt about Ubisoft's newest dive into the world of Far Cry with Far Cry 6. We're going to start with Far Cry 6. I want to preface that there's currently some stuff going on in terms of how Far Cry 6 presents the Latinx community. Um, We're not necessarily going to be covering that in these reviews, uh, but I do think if that's something that interests you, Definitely look it up and read some articles. There's some fascinating pieces about it. Um, it's not necessarily terrible. It's just a unique perspective on how the Latinx community is represented. And not only that, more specifically, you know, like Cubans. And yeah, it's it's very fascinating to see what's happening here. And like we talked about with Cyberpunk, you know, there are concerns because we want writing in games to get better and treat everyone in a way that feels unique and authentic to their cultures and backgrounds. Anyways, that being said, Far Cry 6 by Ubisoft uh, currently has these three Metacritic scores. On Xbox Series, it's an 80. On PS5, it's a 75. And on PC, it's a 77. Um, That's interesting. I think whenever we do review roundups moving forward, I want to include all three systems because, you know, uh, going back to like the PS3 and Xbox 360 DOM, most of the time third-party games are reviewed better on the Xbox because... They developed for the Xbox 360, and then they would port it to the PS3. Uh, and unfortunately for PS3 owners, they were pretty bad ports most of the time. Um, and not saying that this is the case. Yeah. Not saying that this is the case with Far Cry 6. It just, I want to have that context of how it reviewed on all three platforms. Um, obviously, with PS5 being the worst, PC being the middle ground, and Xbox series being uh, the best reviewed. So first up, we got Game Informer. It was reviewed by Brian Shea. He gave it a 90, one of the higher scores for the game. 
He said, quote, Far Cry 6 is a compelling open world action game from the early moments through the final confrontation. The main storyline is exciting and I never ran into a shortage of side content to enjoy. Far Cry 6 isn't revolutionary in its accomplishments, but it executes the franchise's formula better than any entry before it. Pretty strong words there. He obviously touches on it maybe being more of the same, but the best of the same, if that makes sense. Uh, next up, we have EGM, Electronic Gaming Magazine, which was reviewed by Josh Harmon, and he gave it a 40, which is one of the lower wow. scores. I wanted to run the gamut here of all of the yeah. types of perspectives. Uh, quote, Far Cry 6 barely hangs together on the strength of the gameplay loop it inherits from its predecessors. Beyond the addition of some fun new toys like the Resolver weapons and Supremo backpacks, nearly every design change is mystifyingly for the worse, and the mismatch between the gameplay and the storytelling ambitions is more conspicuous than ever. So that's another perspective of, yeah, it being more of the same, but... In, for Josh Harmon, it didn't feel like it did anything to improve on that formula. So interesting. You can see that there's a running thread here of it feels like Far Cry. Um, you know, one reviewer thinks that's a good thing because it kind of improved on it. Another person feels like they didn't. It actually made it worse in all those aspects. And lastly, this is the wordiest one of them all. Easy Allies uh, reviewed it uh, by Ben Moore. He gave it an 80. so middle of the line. Uh, quote, something that keeps Far Cry 6 engaging is that it does seem to go out of its way to be creative and fun whenever it can. It goes to great lengths to add small but ridiculous touches meant to elicit a smile or a chuckle, and these minor additions really help separate it from many other comparable games. It all adds up to make Far Cry 6 a game that is obviously flawed and obviously similar to other Far Cry games before it, but has such a strong spirit that it ends up being memorable regardless. Far Cry 6 is a compelling reminder that video games can be so silly and that sometimes that's exactly what they need to be in order to be effectively cathartic. Obviously, Ben is one of my favorite reviewers and writers. I I love Easy Allies, and I do like how you can tell that you know one score before was a ninety, one was a forty. Ben touches on it feeling more like Far Cry, but to him, the silliness and over the top moments make it the video game that he enjoys playing and makes it cathartic. And I do think this kind of paints a picture for Far Cry Six of. Man, if you like Far Cry, you're probably going to enjoy this because it's most mostly the same type of thing, the funny, wacky video game moments. If you're somebody who is looking for Far Cry to see an evolution in any aspect, you're probably going to be disappointed by it. Um, how do these reviews sound to you, Dom? And in terms of looking forward to playing this, is this something that interests you? Have you already hopped in? What's going on? So I only just had it installed like a few hours ago. I have not booted it up yet other than that so i'm not i'm excited but i haven't started yet so next week i'll have uh, obviously more to say about it in terms of my actual experience but yeah the, the reviews are about what i would have expected you know some in that lower range in the sixes and the sevens you know and a couple in the eights maybe a, a, the rare nine thrown in there averaging out to somewhere in the 70s and that's it's about what i expected this isn't this is ubisoft and this is the sixth game in this series, excluding even all those spin-off games they've done with Far Cry. So, and, and nothing leading up to it really led me to believe that it was going to be drastically different uh, at a, on a gameplay level than any of the previous ones, right? They never, they didn't really talk yeah. much of it. They didn't try to hype it up in that way. They just, what they did to hype it up is look at these wild guns and this weird big old world, you know, um, not weird. It's not, goodness. Um, but also, they hyped up Giancarlo Esposito the most. I think I, I, that dude will not leave my TV. There's commercials for this game all over constantly. Again. Yeah, it's nonstop, which is fascinating. There, I want to think that 
out of any lead he's got to be the biggest actor they've ever been he's the highest profile had. for sure yeah because yeah, it was trey baker in the last one the one before that i don't remember the actor's name but he wasn't huge and then obviously the one from far cry 3 kind of became famous because of far cry 3 and then obviously he had his role in uh better call saul I, in fact i think four and five were both troy baker as the villain i could be wrong five might have been somebody he else. played pagan min yes troy baker did but that's interesting <laughs> in hindsight definitely yeah. probably wouldn't be a good thing these days but yeah it's very interesting and then five i think i think troy baker might have been that villain too troy um, baker was the 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 american guy for sure i know that okay okay that's i didn't know wrong. he was pagan min that's a surprising one to me now I'm actually going to double check because maybe I'm wrong. And this is silly, but anyway, um, yeah, Far so Cry is very much like the, the plain cheeseburger of video games, right? If you like a good plain cheeseburger, you know, it's not going to be the best thing you eat in a month. It's not going to be the worst thing you eat in a month. It's just going to be a plain cheeseburger. And, you know, if you're craving that, it's probably going to hit the spot. And if you were hoping for something better, maybe some more toppings, maybe something of higher quality, you're probably going to be a bit disappointed. But at the end of the day, you're probably still going to eat it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just yeah. what Far Cry is. Yeah. So. I'm, I've always really been into the, the loop, the gameplay loop of these games. And and this is a new setting. You know, how many games have I played that are, you know, set in Latin America? I can't think of one. Maybe a couple missions in certain Call of Duties. I was so, about to say that. Sorry, what's the destruction games? The big destruction oh, open world cause. games? Yeah. yeah, I think those are Latin American based, okay. I think. Okay. I could be wrong. And so obviously that's going to bring inevitable criticism on how they portray those places like you mentioned. And I don't, I don't expect it to be perfect. And there's probably going to be a lot of valid complaints around that. But hopefully it's at least, you know, does some good things and brings some level of like, you know, representation that you just didn't have at all before. Um, still absolutely criticize the hell out of them where, where it's deserved. But from my perspective, I'm excited to see a new place, you know, that I don't usually see in games with different people that are from a different place, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pumped. And this is actually a game that I'm hoping to pick up on sale down the road. Cause I'm interested in playing it, but you know, we talk about this every year with the deluge of releases coming out. You kind of have to plan accordingly on what you're going to, purchase right and for me it really came down this month of like what am i more interested in guardians or this and because i'm such a superhero nerd i'd rather and i'm not saying guardians is going to be a seven it's just what i assume it to be i'd rather play a seven superhero game than a seven open world game at this point you know what i mean it's just what i'm craving um, but i do want to eventually get to it and i'm excited to hear your impressions next week um, but thank you for all those reviews once again if you want to read the full ones we had ben moore from easy allies josh Harmon from egm and brian shea from game informer all excellent reads uh, that paint a picture of their experience with the game next up we have metroid dread uh, from nintendo it's currently sitting at an 88 on metacritic pretty fantastic Damn. nintendo exclusives rarely don't review well um, I think the lowest, the lower reviewing ones are always usually the Pokemon games, and they still review decently fine. They're usually like high seventies, low eighties. But if it's like a mainline Nintendo exclusive, they usually review pretty well. At least in the eighties. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, first up, we got Destructoid. This was reviewed by Chris Carter. He gave it an eighty-five. 
He says, quote, Metroid Dread doesn't take a lot of big swings, but it rarely bats a foul ball. You can tell this was carefully crafted with existing fans in mind, but it's not so heady that newcomers wouldn't be able to pick it up. While we wait for proof of life for Metroid Prime 4, you can journey with Samus in another reliable adventure right now. Pretty good, straightforward. Um, I love his analogy at the beginning, and uh, it's good that he mentions that newcomers can dive right in because this is technically Metroid 5. Um, next up, we have GameSpot's review. This was by Steven Petit or Pettit. I don't know how to specifically pronounce his last name, so sorry about that, Steven. He gave it an 80, uh, so the lowest score on this list. Quote, more than anything else, Metroid Dread feels like going back to a place of comfort after a long time away. Though the gameplays are fine and new features have been added to the mix, Dread sticks closely to the formula of its predecessors. In the end, for longtime fans like myself, that's probably for the best. There's nothing to dread here. We're home again. Wow. So there you go. Um, this one touching on, if you're a fan of the Metroid series, this is a great game for you. Don't be worried at all. Lastly, we have PC Mag with the highest review on the list. They gave it a 90. This is from Will Greenwald. Quote, Metroid Dread for the Nintendo Switch is a worthy holder of the title Metroid 5. Its sprawling world begs you to explore every inch of it, and while it keeps Samus Returns controls elements, they feel much better on the Switch. This is a proper Metroid 5, and that's more than enough to make it an editor's choice pick for Switch games. So they already picked it as an editor's choice, a must-play for the Nintendo Switch. Um, I expected this game to come out and review well. Uh, personally, I'm somebody who I've tried the original Metroid. I've tried Metroid, uh, Super Metroid. I didn't actually like either of them. Um, not that they're bad games. It's just we talk about this sometimes of old games. If you don't have that nostalgic tie to them, it can be hard depending on the person. Some people are more forgiving uh, and just the way they interact with games on a daily basis. For me, I can bounce off pretty hard of games if they don't if I don't have that nostalgia and I don't feel as if they are modern enough or they don't hold up enough um once again not saying metroid or super metroid are bad games i'm just i didn't have a great experience with them and i bounced off pretty hard and i was hoping that this might be the time i hop in and it might be these reviews are really well done i like that it says it, it gives the feeling of the old metroid because maybe this is my way of hopping into the, the series and experiencing that nostalgic love people have for the series dom so it's kind of a you know, uh, as we mentioned for the, the uh, you know, the seventh time in this podcast, having your cake and eating it too of playing a new, new Metroid game, but experiencing the old Metroid that people fell in love with. Um, how do these reviews sound to you overall? Pretty cool. It's a little bit higher even than, um, than I anticipated. But yeah, I'm in the same boat as you, um, except I've never tried any of the previous Metroids at all. Um, probably won't, would never care to, but this is like, okay, so maybe... Maybe this is the spot. Maybe this is this is the one where we try or we jump in for the first time. Because um, I've saw or I've I, I heard a few people compare it to to Hollow Knight, which obviously I'm all about some Hollow Knight. That being said, that my favorite part about not, maybe not my favorite entirely, but one of the best parts about Hollow, Hollow Knight is the the mood and the aesthetic, the setting, uh, you know, which are totally different in in Metroid. It's you know more sci-fi, but that being said, I I also appreciated hearing that this is kind of like a scary game, or at least a tense game. I mean, dread is in the title, so I didn't give that enough. Uh, I didn't give that enough thought that they literally put the word dread in the title. So they could have called it Metroid Five, right? But I think that has that just gives it even additional appeal to me that it's extremely intense, and I imagine it's because that robot 
is always chasing you around kind of like you know what do they call the guy in resident evil uh nemesis nemesis yeah so i it's tough too because like you just mentioned well we got far cry just hit this week and guardians is coming out Uh, what is that in another week or two and then yeah now we got metroid so we're kind of in the middle of a a storm of good things so it's kind of like you gotta pick what you want for now and see what you can get to later on i suppose but i am very intrigued because 88 man that's that's up there that's like i think like spider-man and like you know some of the big first sony first party games they hit the highest are in that range too so this is it's pretty cool to see that it's getting good scores yeah my plan is to possibly just hold off until around christmas and then i could just be you know, playing Halo Infinite and then dipping to this too and having that back and forth action of something completely different. Um, like you said, the dread factor in terms of it feeling like a scary game kind of makes me want to play it during October for the vibes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it, it is surprising. Um, I'm interested to see if this ends up selling really well because people are assuming this is going to be the best-selling Metroid because it's on the Switch, which is a great assumption to make. Um, but I wonder if this kind of kicks the can down the road for the Prime Trilogy or if it Nintendo's like, well, it's selling, let's take advantage of it and maybe sometime early next year we get the release of Metroid Prime t- of some extent, maybe even just the first game, right? Regardless of where Metroid Prime 4 stands. Um, but yeah, it's good to see the start to the uh, holiday rush of video games doing pretty well. You know, people can say, oh, Far Cry 6 didn't review as well as, uh, you know, it could have reviewed better, but to me and you, I think it's more than fair of what we expected. I'm not surprised. And and I think it's going to sell very well based on how many commercials I'm seeing. Goodness. Oh, for sure, for sure. Those games always sell. I mean, they sold even without somebody like Giancarlo, right? And we have, uh, you know, the Book of Boba Fett coming out at the end of the year too, which people are probably going to feel the vibes of him from Mandalorian. So, uh, not that he'll be in the show, but, you know, people will be talking about Mandalorian and then, uh, (laughs) hey, you never know. He probably could no, be. no, I don't, I don't know if he's in it, but it's gonna, okay. you know, a lot of times people end up, they'll probably watch Mandalorian leading up to it, and that'll be conversations on the internet, right? People will be talking about Giancarlo, and then obviously the game will be there too. So, I, I expect it to sell pretty well too. That's pretty much it for all of the news. Went over those reviews. Um, nothing to add in terms of what I've been playing. I've been playing more Psychonauts too. Game is, uh, much longer than I anticipated in the best way possible. Um, I. Because right now where I'm at, I already finished Psychonauts 1, if that makes sense, in terms of the time I put in. And I think I'm about a little over halfway through this game. Uh, Part of that is due to some of the open areas are optional in terms of you wanting to explore them and collect uh, items. Or you can just kind of just main the story. And I've spent some time in this. uh, It's called the Questionable Area. It's this camping zone that... uh, Razaquato, the main character's family, resides in, and there's a bunch of stuff to do there, side quests and stuff. So I took some time there, um, just kind of just taking my time with the game overall. You know, people waited, uh, I think, 19 years or 17 years for this game to come out. Obviously, I didn't have to wait as long. I finished Psychonauts 1 literally a day before this one came out. Um, but I am taking my time with it because we don't know when we're going to get another Psychonauts, and I'm loving it. And right now, it's tough. Um, you know, Death's Door is my game of the year candidate so far, but I think it's really going to, so far it's going to come down to this, uh, to that and Psychonauts 2 because I'm loving every moment of it and the animation quality in it, the, just the level of polish that this game has in comparison to the first Psychonauts and you could just see 
the game development evolution since its release and the budget this game has and the backing of Microsoft. I was reading some stories from Tim Schafer of there's like entire parts of this game that were likely going to be pulled out during development for budget constraints. And then the moment they were acquired by Microsoft, they just like bring those over, put those back into the spreadsheet, which yeah. is really cool. Um, no, so I'm excited. Uh, excited to get that done and continue with that game, having a blast, loving all the characters. The other thing I dived into uh, was partially FOMO and partially just me wanting to try something new. I've been playing New World, the Amazon oh, MMO. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've I've been watching. I mean, I watched Andy Cortez stream it a little bit, and I was like, this actually looks really cool. So we've talked about multiple times. I'm not an MMO guy. It's just not my thing. I've tried Elder Scrolls Online. I've tried WoW. I've tried a lot of them. Um, the thing that I like about this one so far, and who knows if I bounce off of it, but the combat is active combat. Like you have to swing, you have to block, which adds a whole level of immersion for me and interaction that I don't get from MMOs. Cause I'm not the type of person who just likes clicking and letting things go. That's why I'm not a big league of legends person. Uh, I just, that, that level of, uh, interaction doesn't do much for me. Uh, so the active combat adds a whole new layer. Um, the setting is cool. Obviously it's like colonial, uh, America type vibes. Thankfully they made it so native Americans weren't the enemies anymore. I don't know if you remember that when new world was originally revealed that it was like mostly native, uh, native individuals who were like the primary oh, enemies. Man. Oh, man. Not a good look. Obviously they changed that, which is good. Having a good time with it. It's, I mean, it's an MMO and I'm so inexperienced with the genre that I can't offer anything that you couldn't just see in a better place. Uh, but I just thought I'd mention it cause this is an odd choice for me. Is it, uh, one um... thing I, Okay, is it a, a sub, a subscription, or is it a one-time? No, it's $40 straight up, and you never have to pay again. Oh, okay. Interesting. It was 30 bucks if you bought it like during the beta period, like earlier in the year, mm-hmm. and then it became 40 once it released, okay. um, which that was another reason why I was d- decided to try it, because uh, I was like, oh, I only had to pay once, and I have access to the game forever. Sure. And there's so. probably some type of microtransactions in there, but nothing. I don't imagine anything egregious, but... No, and the leveling system isn't so like in WoW or something you build into a character like you have a paladin or a warrior or some type of like subclass, right? In this you're building towards uh, different types of weapons. So like if you're going to be ranged with like a bow or a musket or something or if you're going to uh, so I'm a heavy weapons guy. I carry around a battle axe and a war hammer. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's my vibe. Uh, but you can have like a sword and shield, that type of stuff. Um, like I said, I'm very very much a rookie when it comes to MMOs. So I don't have much else to add, but I thought I'd mention it here. Um, there's there's something else I wanted to say about what I've been playing, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, that's that's. Oh, I, I was surprised that I was able to download Persona Five on my PS Five, so I might end up hopping into that. Uh, oh, I don't know if I mentioned this. I have a PS Five now. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. <laughs> it finally came in. I got the email from PlayStation saying, "Hey, you can order one." And uh, we have this conversation of like, oh, what are you going to play now? Um, it's probably going to be a while before I play like Returnal or Ratchet on it and get around to those. I honestly just bought it because it was my chance to buy it. Um, and thankfully, I have the expendable income to do so. I just didn't know what my next opportunity was. So I'm fine buying it now, sitting on it, and then getting a game when I'm actually into it. Plus, I'm thinking of you know the money I would spend on video games for it. I might just hold and give myself a present during Christmas and get me an expanded storage of some sort, right? Instead, in lieu of games for the meantime. Um, but yeah, I'm a owner of a PS5 now. It's actually the first time I've ever owned both consoles 
uh, within a year of their release. 3060 I had. I didn't get PS3 until Last of Us. Uh, Xbox uh, One I had. I didn't get uh, PlayStation 4 until Spider-Man. So this is the first time I've had both. And obviously when I had my PS2, I didn't have an Xbox. And when I had my PS1, Xbox didn't exist. So it's pretty cool for the first time. I didn't think about that because I've never done that, I guess. Um, I guess Switch and PS4 are far enough apart. But yeah. Switch is such a weird outlier because it's like in between. And I would actually consider it more Xbox One, PS4 than next gen. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, the UI is interesting. Uh, I have some issues with it in terms of the microphone on the controller. I just am not a fan of that whole situation of having to turn it off every time I turn on my console. And I'm going to go on record. This is the hill I'm going to die on. (laughs) I think... That is a super dumb engineering and design solution. If you're going to have a built-in microphone on your controller, the controller itself should have an on-off switch. So you can either permanently turn it off or turn it on. It's where you have to access it through the settings. That's such an oversight. It's like a huge privacy concern too. I don't know why people didn't really make much of a much more of a thing about it is like, if I had a kid, that's a whole thing you have to deal with every time they log on to play Fortnite or something, right? Just like, obviously, it's not a huge thing you have to deal with, but it is something you always have to remember, which is one more thing than you want to when you're trying to just turn on a console and play a video game. It's like, oh, yeah, right, shit, I had to turn off my microphone. You know what I mean? It's just annoying. So do you have to – I guess I've never even really messed with it. Um, you don't so play do you... online games, though, right? So it's, it's something like you wouldn't even have to worry about. But you have to turn it off every time you – uh, use the console. I couldn't find a setting that it would automatically turn it off. Interesting. So then, well, I'm going to have to look into this because, uh, I mean, I never, I know like that button on the controller mutes you, but you have, I know that you have to push every time you turn it on, but I would have assumed that, yeah, there's some way to turn it off by default because yeah, it's always on. It could be always listening. What the fuck? And I could be talking out of my ass. I just want to say that as well. If you find something I didn't, then I'll, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm 100% right on the situation or I have all the answers, but from everything I know and have gathered, it's not great, but I could be proven wrong. I'm always willing to do so. Um, that's the beauty of it. You know, you learn more information, you change your mind. That's how things work, or at least they should work. <laughs> Can't speak for everyone, unfortunately. Um, yeah. What about you? Anything interesting? Yeah, a little bit. So first thing is actually... Deathloop is done. Congrats. I don't want to spoil anything, but... I am playing it when it comes to Xbox next year. First thing. Day it releases. Yeah. Inside so that bad boy. I don't spoil it, but I'll say lackluster ending. Very lackluster ending. Um, In comparison, did Dishonored have lackluster endings? No. No? No. Those, okay. no. They had a good ending. <laughs> really good ending. Do you think games. it having a lackluster ending is a product of the game design and like the what they went for? Not necessarily. I think the the design of it worked really well. I I always like that made a lot of sense. But I don't want to say too much cuz I know you won't play it. Um yeah. cuz it it does a thing that that I hate. But if I tell you what that thing is, then um you won't be as disappointed when it happens because you'll know. But <laughs> we'll, we'll pin <laughs> so this I conversation until I I beat yeah. it. But like overall, uh, you said obviously the design worked for you. Um, without spoiling anything, could you give me maybe three strengths of the game and maybe a, a weakness or a couple of weaknesses if you saw any? 
yeah uh the flexibility and freedom biggest strength like the it's it's like another it's kind of like a breath of the wild or or dishonored of course where you can do you can experiment and do things in such weird ways it's just a big it's kind of like each level is a big sandbox and you just get to manipulate things and watch weird things happen based on what you do with in the powers and abilities you have that's that's kind of the funnest thing about it and what's both a pro and a con is there's there's four levels and each level there's there's four times of day and so they they change pretty drastically depending on what time of day you're in them but so it's that's a bad thing because by the end of it and then after you've been hunting for trophies and stuff too for a while um you they you they're very old right you get used to them quick but that also means that you get used to them quick you know where every enemy is and you just destroy them and it's kind of fun in that way too um and you can do things quickly and it's just it, so that's both a good and a bad thing so it as far as like replay value you, you plateau eventually but um so there's that and then the narrative i think is is really really good until it's not but <laughs> so yeah i, I don't know. i think there was three positives in there a couple negatives i suppose with the uh, do you get a you didn't clarify this uh is it a day night cycle or do you choose the time in which you enter the level really good question so uh, yeah i mentioned there's four times a day and you you can choose to wait so you could it's the morning <laughs> you'll say right and you're at okay. your hub screen basically you're, you're out you spend a lot of time in this hub screen where you can choose which level to go into and it might be morning and you'll see the four levels and you'll see oh this visionary is in this area, that visionary is in this area. Um, you can go and then look into some of your notes and your quest lines and stuff and see, oh, I'm looking for Frank. Well, Frank isn't anywhere that you can get to until nighttime, but it's morning. Well, you can just hit this wait button and wait for three more cycles until it's nighttime and then go see what's up with Frank, right? So it's mm-hmm. so you do have, uh, and then obviously you could just loop to the next day too. Um, so yeah, it gives you that flexibility to choose when and where you want to go which helps because uh it's re- it, the whole thing is just really cool how they set it up um because it sounds like when you when like we when we first heard about it it's like this is going to be i don't know a lot of complicated and and where to get into but the way they set up how the quests work and how you get to choose where to go and um what to do it's really really cool it takes a minute to understand um just because it's a different concept. It's not going to be like when I jump into Far Cry and it's going to be like riding a bike, right? This was like, okay. And there's a lot of information at first in the first like two hours. Um, so it takes a minute to get into, but once you do, it makes a lot of sense. You're like, okay, this is pretty cool how they set this up. Um, but like I said, yeah, super unsatisfying ending. I just, I got to reiterate that. <laughs> it's kind of I got a, I got a couple more questions for you. One, did this feel like a PS5 experience? Uh, yeah. Um, it's not the best looking game I, you know, I've seen on mm-hmm. PS5 yet, but compare, especially compared to the Dishonored games, very, which are, you know, they have their own style, but very muddy and like kind of low, like low texture kind of thing. Going it's on like painterly low polygon type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a drastic improvement from those. Definitely. Like there were a lot of points where things like look really, really good. Um, the character animation is not so much but in general it's a huge step up from the dishonored games that arcane did so now but performance was there hitches bugs pop in 
Yeah, I actually had um, an issue where it happened like I think three or four times. I got stuck in the pause menu where <laughs> you, know, you pause the game, mess around and do whatever you're doing in the menu and then you can't get out of the pause menu. And I had to close the game and reopen it. So that happened to me a couple of times that I was like, that's weird. Not, you know, not too, nothing too bad, but I, I think I've been like really blessed lately with games performing really well because like those bugs stuck out to me. Knock on one. wood, Dom. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, performance, there's a performance mode and then like a visual mode and I kept it on performance mode and as far as I could tell it was 60 FPS the whole time. There might have been hitches I didn't notice, but it was pretty good. And my last one is a bit of a two-parter, so you're going to answer this from two perspectives. For people who love Dishonored and people who maybe never got a chance to check them out but are interested in Deathloop, does this get the Dom's must-play seal of approval? Whether you own a PS5 now or you're going to pick it up on Game Pass when it comes out next year, is this a must-play for either of those groups, in your opinion? Yeah, definitely for if you like Dishonored. you got to be here for this. You have to. It's... um. It's it's almost like a sequel to the Dishonored games, you know. Plus, it's structured so wildly with the whole loop thing, but it's also it's easier than Dishonored, and it focuses more on uh, you know combat and less on stealth. Although that's still totally viable, but there's no punishment for stealth, um, or rather for not using stealth. So it it encourages you to be more aggressive, basically. And so it's like Dishonored, but it pushes you to play a little bit differently, even though some of the abilities are straight out of Dishonored. Um, it still encourages you; it pushes you to play a certain way differently than it did in Dishonored. Um, and then, at the same note, if you're if you're on the fence with Dishonored or thought like it was too difficult, like for example, I remember Jordan um, used to not like that Dishonored was first person because first person stealth is harder than third person, which is definitely true. Um, and so this is the death loop is much less punishing in that way it's just i think it's an easier game it's easier to get into and um and easier to master than dishonored was and is that and then dishonored was and that's when it gets the game gets the most fun is once you've like mastered it and you're just like i said before just out running around just wrecking um what do they call the people in this game i can't remember eternalist which is such a cool name to call all the enemies because they're eternally stuck on the loop so they're just eternalist i like that yeah uh, detail but yeah, I think it's it's an easier to, it's easier to get get into than Dishonored if you know you haven't if you're not into this genre so much. I'd say. Cool. It's man, I can't wait to hop into it. I'm very interested in uh, doing that next year. Matt, you obviously you like the Dishonored games and you like this too. Is Arcane one of your favorite developers? I think so. I think this is this is kind of the game that really is like like knocking me upside the head. Like yo, like give them the respect that the that they've earned here like they're now like in that a tier you know that like i don't know maybe top five or certainly top 10 of uh, studios that that i really like and i and actually they did pray too which i've started but i never finished and now i really actually want to go back to because that i think has a lot of similarities to death loop and dishonored but again is even a different kind of play style that encourages you to to use so i want to get back to that also but yeah like this studio is to me like this is really cool and this is going to be maybe this is a game of the year game right um which dishonored the first one i believe was also won a lot of game of the year awards came out in an odd year but um i think they have a really good track record here 
And, you know, um, as some for all those people out there who maybe just own an Xbox and are maybe a bit bummed that this is coming to PlayStation first, right? Um, know that now this studio is going to be making exclusive titles for the platform and they're very talented. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Redfall is arcane as well, right? That sounds right, but I... Redfall is the, you know, the vampire multiplayer game? Yeah. Yeah, it's Arcane as well. It's Arcane okay, Leon, cool. I think. So that means that Xbox gamers are getting two Arcane games next year. Because Redfall is set for spring 2022, and we know Deathloop will come out a year after its release on Game Pass. So we might be, you know, you might be a bit bummed this year as an Xbox gamer that you're not getting to play potentially a Game of the Year winner. But next year, you get a double dip. Because PlayStation isn't getting Redfall, uh, presumably. Um, but yeah, it's it's great to hear that it paid off. It's it's always worrisome when we know a game's coming out from a studio we like, you know, and we don't know if it's going to be good or not. Especially with something like Deathloop, where we are concerned of this asymmetrical stuff. It's so weird. What's going to happen here? How does it all work? And for you to be satisfied with it is always good to hear. Because in the world of video games, it's not like movies where you wait a couple of months for a movie you just heard about to come out and you get to watch it and it's an hour experience and then you're in and you're out hour to two hours. With games, you wait years. And then in order to fully complete the game, it takes hours. You know what I mean? So it's a much more of a commitment emotionally that it's always good when it pays off. Um, that's it for this week's show. If you want to, please follow us on YouTube. Search Control. The interest will pop up. Subscribe. Hit the bell notification so you know when we upload new videos. Like the video if you enjoyed it. Dislike it if you did. Leave us a comment. Uh, let us know if you like Arcane and if you're planning to play Deathloop, whether on PlayStation 5 or on Xbox next year. Uh, on Twitter, you can follow us collectively at CTRLINT. It's Controlled Interest abbreviated. You can follow me at Jared Weich. That's J-E-R-R-A-D-W-Y-C-H-E. You can follow Dom at OBDOMKenobi. But the O in OB is the number zero, not an O. Correct? Always want to double check now that it's your new Twitter handle. Um, we're on Spotify, which is my preferred podcast listening platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, all of that good stuff. You can even go to the website, controlledinterest.com, and the podcast is always available there as well. That's it for this week. We'll catch you guys next week as we inch closer towards the Game Awards when hopefully, Dom, for your sake, we hear more about Breath of the Wild 2. Um, Wait, correct me if I'm wrong real quick. They didn't give that an official title, did they? I don't know. Before, they just said it was the sequel. But maybe this, you know, a few months ago, they gave it a two. I can't remember if that trailer we got, if they just confirmed it's Breath of the Wild sequel. Or, I mean, we already know it was a Breath of the Wild sequel, but you know Nintendo's weird. Like, no, we're confirming it now. It's our choice to confirm it. Um, they have not. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, hopefully we hear more about that for Dom's sake and, uh, hopefully Elden Ring doesn't get delayed. I don't think it will, but you never know. We'll catch you guys next week. Thank you guys for listening as always. And we'll see you on the flip side. Bye.